Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Lauren Volkman. And uh, we're going to take you on a mega epic adventure. Uh, it's going to be a three-parter, something we haven't done very frequently. But as we started researching this particular topic, we discovered there's just so much interesting stuff that affects so many different industries and technologies. We couldn't really wrap it up into a single episode or even a two-parter. It is truly a special presentation. It, it, it in fact, is a special presentation presentation. And if you, like me, are a child of, say, the 70s and 80s, you might remember seeing special presentation on a certain pay television channel, HBO, Home yes. Box Office. That is what we are talking about for the next three episodes, yeah. because there's so much history involved. And, and I, I never realized it before we started researching this, but if it weren't for some of the people who were working in HBO's early days, we might not have cable TV or, or satellite cable as we know it. Right. Yeah. For example, all those other basic cable stations that you are familiar with may not have existed had it not been for some of the efforts on the part of, of multiple players in this story. And uh, also some of the other issues, everything from scrambling signals to piracy to streaming online, all of these things come into play with HBO. And and original content, as many, many of you statistically probably know. Yes, whether whether you are subscribers or the other type. So we're going to um we're gonna have to journey back in time. So uh yeah, I know we just uh we just dusted it off recently, but uh it's gonna get a workout. Let's pile into the wayback machine. Okay, back in. As, as it turns out, we're gonna have to go really far back, way before HBO was founded, all the way back to nineteen twenty two. So let's let's just set that right here and uh, push the button, Lauren. Pushed. All right, here we are. Sunny 1922. Now, that's when Henry Luce and Britton Haddon decided to, uh, you know, pack it up. They had been working for the Baltimore News and they decided they didn't want to do that anymore. They they cut their ties, said their goodbyes. And went to the Big Apple, because if you can make it there, well, you know the rest. So they had this crazy idea. They wanted together to launch a brand new magazine with the title of Time. And they got about $85,000 in startup money from initial stockholders mm-hmm. and, uh, and incorporated in that November of 1922. That's right. So the very first issue of the magazine launched on March 3rd, 1923. Now, this company would actually debut lots of other titles. It wasn't just Time. Time was the starting point. But then they also launched Fortune in 1930, which was a year after the great stock market crash of 1929, when a lot of people lost their fortunes. Uh, they also launched Life in 1936, the magazine. Uh, Life, the actual, you know, point of existence had existed for billions of years. Uh, that we know of. Yes. That we know of, yes. At least on Earth. Perhaps longer in other places. But the magazine itself didn't come into existence until 1936. And then, of course, the most important magazine of all time, 1954, Sports Illustrated. I've never read a single issue. <laughs> <laughs> I, I but know of sports, <laughs> but it's pretty it's pretty big. All of these are pretty big. Yeah. Uh, the the company has certainly become a print media giant. And 
I mean, at the time was a print media giant. Yeah, and yeah. And would go on to become an other media giant. Right, because why, why would you limit yourself to print media? They wanted to diversify. So moving into the 1960s, just, just come along with us. The, the nice thing about the Wayback Machine is it lets us go forward in time much faster than backward. We don't even have to get into it. So 1960s, Time Incorporated starts looking at a way of getting into this crazy television business to branch out from print media. And so as doing that, they, they looked at a, uh, a little company called Sterling Communications, and they bought up a 20% stake in that company. Uh, there was a man running that by the name of Chuck Dolan, who um was a was a bit of a visionary. Yeah. Oh, huge visionary. He's talked about sometimes. Uh, I mean, despite the fact that he's kind of unassuming and and pretty soft spoken and doesn't really he's not a public figure the way that some of our other tech visionaries are. I mean, mm-hmm. he's not he doesn't have the stage presence of, say, a Steve Jobs. Right. Right. But nonetheless, without him, we probably would not have cable TV as we know it. Um, he, he was born in 1926 in Cleveland and served in the Air Force, dropped out of John Carroll University, and started up a company that edited sports reels for TV syndication. Eventually, he sold that and moved to New York, where he founded Sterling in 1968. Yeah, that little company where he was editing sports footage, he did that out of his home. He and his wife yeah, together. Yeah, he and his wife in Cleveland, in their house, <laughs> ran this entire company. Um, and And sold it for enough money that he was able to found a, a cable television company. And at the time, cable was not what it is today. Right. Yeah. In fact, cable at that time was really meant to deliver broadcast television as an over the air television. This is the stuff that normally you would put an antenna on top of your TV or perhaps on top of your home or uh, apartment building. And you would get signals over the air, which would then run down to your television. A lot of people considered this free television. It's not like you had to subscribe to it. However, right. it's ad supported TV. Right? Uh, sure. And I mean, nothing's nothing's free there. And it's right. than it's free. Lunch. Right. Yeah. So even public television that exists on on uh, grants and and uh, donations. The other commercial TV that existed through ad supported. But anyway, the issue was that in rural areas, you couldn't necessarily get a good signal because if you did not live near a transmission tower, the transmission tower might not have enough power to put out there so that you could get the same sort of content that you could if you lived closer. Uh, right. So cable stations were really just ways of getting TV, regular old broadcast airwave TV, out to those rural areas. Exactly. Now, it, it didn't exist in big cities like New York. Right. Because the thing about New York was that you happened to live really close to all those transmission towers. Yeah. Everything was being broadcast out of the Empire State Building, basically. Except the thing is, is that New York has other skyscrapers. And if you yeah. lived, say, behind a skyscraper, you might not. I mean, you absolutely wouldn't be able to get that signal from that tower. Right. If you got a signal at all, it'd be really weak. So you would have lousy reception which meant that there were people in New York who might live a few blocks away from the Empire State Building, but their reception on their televisions were worse than what you might see in the suburbs in New Jersey. Yeah, you could get it better in Jersey. Why, why yeah, would you? Yeah, come even... on, look, you got to pay to get out of Jersey. Why would you have to? You know, that, that was the way they got you. You had to pay to get out. So then you're like, well, I get better TV over here anyway. I'll just stay in Jersey. I apologize, everyone, for starting Jonathan on that, yeah, on that bender. I, I, I promise I won't. I won't continue. I apologize as well. At any rate, this is exactly the case. So what Dolan thought was, why don't I bring cable 
into the city. That way we can have the same signal over cable. And even if you live right behind a skyscraper, you're still going to have great reception. Sure. The thing is, is that it's really I mean, it was and still is really expensive to lay this cable. We're talking copper cable at the time, by the way, fiber optics wouldn't come into the picture until the 1980s. Yeah. Not only that, but it was in New York. They had had a, a, a blizzard several decades earlier. That had wiped out a lot of the power lines and and uh, telephone lines. And as a result, city officials said, hey, you guys, you're going to have to bury this. Now. Everything has to be buried. So that way we will never have an outage on this scale ever again, which meant that the cable that Dolan was going to lay would have to be underground, too. This meant that per mile of cable minimum, you'd have to spend ten thousand dollars per mile. Now, in New York, to get those uh Apartment buildings, those high-rise apartment buildings wired, you'd have to build a cable through the apartment building to eat, with a branch to each unit, right? Mm-hmm. That's the only way you could do it. That made it go up to around $300,000 per mile, and this is in 1960s dollars. We're not talking about adjusting for inflation here. So this is really expensive stuff. And Dolan, you know, this was a very ambitious plan, and Dolan saw the long tail, right? He saw that this could be profitable. But it was going to require a lot of work and it, perhaps more work than he anticipated when he first got into the business. Uh, yeah, Sterling almost certainly would have gone bankrupt if it hadn't been for Times investment in them at that at that time. Exactly. So I'm just yeah. going to say the word time as many times as possible. <laughs> you, there's no way of avoiding it. Uh, just wait till Warner gets in there because I use that word all the time. 1971. So still trying to make Sterling Communications a profitable company. Dolan begins to brainstorm ideas that would convince subscribers to join on to this, to, to actually willingly become a customer of cable. Because again, you have to convince people, Hey, I know you could get this free over the air on your antenna, but the reception is lousy. Pay for it on cable. You'll get it. You'll get a great experience. And the people who they were contacting were saying, but why would I? Why would I do that? Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, the, the stuff I get over the air is lousy, but if it's going to be the same thing, just better quality on cable, I, I feel like I'm getting the rough end of the deal here if I have to pay for it. So he says, what, what can I do to differentiate cable to make it more, uh, more attractive? Ah, what if we made a special channel just for cable? It's not for over the air. Only people who are subscribers to the cable will get it. And it has to be something that's really, really compelling, something maybe that carries a lot of sports with it. That was his first approach. And he called this idea the Green Channel. He he referred to it in as the Macy's of television. And this was not an entirely new idea. Actually, RCA had created a radio network specifically to give people a reason to go out and buy RCA radios. Huh. So why would you buy something where there's no content? This is sort of the argument people have about 4K televisions right now. Why would you go out and get a 4K TV if sure. there are no it's the same argument? That argument mm-hmm. has been around ever since we started making this kind of tech. Oh, yeah. And and understand that at the time, there was some programming on cable stations, but most of it was either extremely low budget or, or very local, like a clock streaming the local time yeah. or just weather reports or at the very best public access, although that didn't become a mandatory thing, uh, you know, branching into the Wayne's world kind of, kind right. of end of the deal right. until after the FCC's Telecommunications Act of 1972, wherein they said that any station that had more than... 3,500 subscribers had to have public access mm-hmm. content. Yeah. yeah, at this time. But 
but not even that. I mean, we, yeah. we did not even have Wayne's World. No. So not, it was not party time. It was not excellent. It was not. And nor Anton Jessup. We had no Dr. Anton Jessup. That is now I don't want to imagine a world where there's no Anton Jessup. <laughs> but so, so it was considered a very commercially unviable space. Exactly. Yeah. This was really, again, just an alternative to deliver broadcast over the air TV. It wasn't thought of as a way to create new types of content. And also very regionalized, very much spread out and separated. Like we didn't have these massive cable companies that had enormous networks. You had all these different smaller regional companies that serviced little rural areas. And so even if you wanted to launch a big idea, like a big program, let's say that it's a, a company that's out in the middle of nowhere, in the, in the middle of a, of a state where there's hardly anything else, and they think we've got a great idea for a show, we're going to produce a show, they might only be able to deliver that show to a very small audience because it wasn't a nationwide network. Mm-hmm. So very different world than the one we live in now. So how do you make the Green Channel a must-buy product? Uh, you know, we had a lot of these attempts to make pay television channels before, but they had failed. And again, that over-the-air-for-free model was very compelling. Mm-hmm. Well, 1972, Dolan decides to pitch this idea to Time, which had invested in Sterling Communications. Uh, right. He wound up talking with one of their lawyers, a man named Jerry Levin, and uh, the two convinced the company to take on the idea. Yeah. And so 50 years after the founding of Time Incorporated, remember that was back in 1922, now we're in 1972, Time Incorporated launches a new cable television channel. They had taken the Green Channel idea, they renamed it, after a series of, of long and arduous meetings, and they figured that this name wouldn't really stick for that long because it was pretty lame. Yeah, this was supposed to just be a temporary kind of placeholder. Home box office. That was the name. HBO for short. They thought, well, we'll home box office until we figure out something better. They never <laughs> figured out anything better, and they went with it. Uh, so this was, again, the idea originally was a pay television premium channel that would carry uncut uncensored movies that you wouldn't find on broadcast television. Uh, plus a few live sports events from Madison Square Garden. Right. So, again, very new thing. The cable television itself did not have that many subscribers, and they and time was not ready to commit full on with this. You know, And so they said, well, let's find a test market. Let's look around and see if we can figure out what we can, you know, how to develop the strategy to make sure it works before we really throw in mm-hmm. 100%. And they, they did have on their side the fact that TV execs were eager for a way to make television unfree. I mean, you know, if, if you can turn a profit on something, that's always better than giving it away for free. Yep. And um, and stealing cable is a lot harder than it is to steal signals out of thin air. Right. Yeah. If you were just broadcasting this over the air, then obviously anyone with an antenna could get at it. There'd have to be some other kind of scrambling thing. And we'll talk about scrambling later on in another episode. Uh, sure. But OK, so th- so this test market wound up being um, in Pennsylvania and New York. Yeah. So the very first one was just Wilkes Bar, Pennsylvania, tiny community, like uh, 400 people. Yeah, yeah we're talking. Three, or I mean, I think they had 400 subscribers. Yeah, at first. I think 365 was the estimate I saw. Total. Okay. <laughs> so even even fewer than that. But the reason for that, uh, well, they wanted to do Wilkes Bar, Pennsylvania, mainly because one of the big uh, partnerships that Time had struck was with the NBA. And the idea was to be able to cover NBA games live so that people who wouldn't have access to that kind of programming could actually watch it live. And that would be really exciting and be a good reason to subscribe to the service. However, the NBA, like a lot of different sporting uh, organizations, has blackout rules. And where the- where they, they don't want you to uh, to publish to 
broadcast. Broadcast a game within a certain radius of the stadium where it's being played. Exactly. And so if they had launched in, say, Allentown or Philadelphia, that would have been in the radius for uh, all the Philadelphia teams. So they said, well, why don't we do Wilkes-Barre? It's just outside that radius. We're not going to be hit by any blackout dates. Uh, it'll be the best possible experience. And that'll give us the test that we need that can be used as word of mouth. So 365 subscriptions, $6 per month for HBO. So uh, it goes live on November 8th, 1972. And the very first movie carried on HBO was titled... Sometimes a great notion, a fantastic film about logging, logging. Yeah. Henry Fonda was in it and Paul Newman was in it. And it was really a story about individualism and being able to strike out on your own and to survive against odds, both from nature and man. (laughs) And I'm making it sound way more exciting than what it really was. But yes, that's that was the movie. And then the other thing that they aired was a hockey game, not an NBA game. Not even an NBA game after all that trouble. Yeah, the NBA does not tend to play in hockey games. Uh, This was a game featuring the Rangers against the Canucks. And I know you're all dying to know who won. Rangers, 5-2. All right. OMG spoilers. Yeah, well, you know, um, for those other people who are using Wayback Machines of their own to go back into 1972 and watch all those games, forget I said that. So... Back in these early years, the service would only be on the air for a few hours each day. It was not a 24-hour channel. Oh, right. They would sign off at a certain point. Yeah, I actually watched the little cartoon they used to play at the very end. It was very cute. It's actually like several minutes long. It wasn't like a little 20-second thing. But it's a cartoon showing, you know, lights going out in the city and setting an alarm clock and, and fluffing a pillow. And this is all cartoonish, right? All cartoons. But it was essentially saying, good night. Good night. Yeah, it was Almost had, almost had a Night Vale moment again there. Boy, it just creeps <laughs> in, doesn't it? So meanwhile, on the uh, back on the, the corporate side of things. So so that's what's going on on the actual television. But on the corporate side of things, you have Time Incorporated and they had to carve out space for this new uh, this new enterprise, HBO. So originally they started making space in their own office building in Time Incorporated's headquarters in New York. Uh, which was already a bustling office. Yeah. So that meant that as HBO began to grow, and it grew pretty quickly, uh, it meant that they had to start getting creative, finding places to stick people. So departments wouldn't necessarily be all set together. You might have a department head who's on a different floor from the rest of the office. Uh, they, there were stories about people having to find an office space in an old broom closet. Uh- or, yeah. or four or five people all sharing a common office area that used to be a, a meeting room. That kind of stuff. It's things that we can kind of identify with here at How Stuff Works. But the interesting thing was that this actually promoted a kind of camaraderie among the office workers. They had a, a closeness and kind of a party atmosphere, too. Yeah. This, this idea that we're all in it together. We're doing this exciting thing. A lot of the people who are working there were very young it, so, it was it was a very happening, very startup kind of vibe, yeah. despite the fact that it was being owned and operated by this very large company. Exactly. That had been in business for 50 years, and yet it had a very startup feel. That's a very good way of putting it. So, yeah, very exciting. And uh, we can't wait to talk about where it went after that first year. I mean, we've only made it up to the actual year in which HBO premiered. We've got so much more to talk about. But before we get into that, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. All right. 
We're back, and it's 1973. This was the year that Time bought HBO outright from Chuck Dolan and the rest of the Sterling investors. And oh, uh, well, but poor Chuck Dolan, he must have. I mean, he must have really missed out on everything, right? I huh. mean, that just. Uh, yeah, no, no, not the the <laughs> the, the opposite of that. In fact, uh, if we can set the wayback machine to be the way forward machine for just a second, All right, let's, uh, I'll just get on in here. You just you keep going. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna work on this. Okay, okay. So Dolan would would use this buyout money to found Cablevision, which would make him billions. Today, it is the largest cable provider in the New York metro area, um, along with its spinoffs like AMC and IFC, the the two very popular channels, which you might know from, from everything. Switching, from, using your remote control. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Walking Dead and et cetera. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Mad Men. Um, and his resulting properties like Madison Square Garden and the New York Nixon Rangers. This is from a guy who had a little business out of his kitchen. Right. In Cleveland. A Cleveland boy. I love wow. you, man. So he's he's still kicking as of this podcast. He's worth some three point six billion. He has six children who um more or less run a lot of his empire. Wow. And it's Impressive. A huge success story. And someday he's a very interesting person. And I would really like to do more on him and or Cablevision and or all of that. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. But okay, back in 1973. I just got this thing fixed to go forward. Oh, forget it. We'll just stay here. (laughs) Okay. All right. So uh, 1973, Jerry Levin continues working with the HBO brand, but it only has about 8,000 subscribers, and uh, that's spread across maybe 14 different cable operating systems, all of which are still in Pennsylvania. Yeah, it still hasn't moved into New York yet. So the the big the big irony here is that it was possible because of the stake in Sterling Communications, but that was based solely in New York, and Sterling Communications did not yet carry HBO. It was all still in Pennsylvania. Meanwhile, that same year, 1973, you saw several other pay television channels launch, they had names like Star Channel from Warner Cable, uh, Theater Vision, and Channel 100. And if you're asking yourself, uh, okay, well, where did those go? Yeah. Nowhere. Yeah, they didn't, they did not succeed. They did not in the long run survive. So, uh, but they, it did show that HBO was starting to kind of set a precedent and other, other companies were thinking, how can we also capitalize on this? They just hadn't quite figured out the best way of doing it. 1974, we see HBO clawing its way you know, just inch by inch to 57,000 subscribers in Pennsylvania and finally also in New York. Mm-hmm. Also finally available on Sterling Communications. But now Time had bought out the rest of the interest in Sterling mm-hmm. and had renamed it Manhattan Cable. So 1975. Yeah, yeah. In, in an effort to reach an even broader audience, Levin convinced the then president of Time to let HBO begin to deliver content via satellite. And this was crazy. No yeah. one no one wanted to believe that this was going to work at yeah. all. This is the very first television station in the United States to use satellite as a means of distribution. And it didn't mean that they were using satellite to beam it to households that had satellite dishes. Right. They because, were actually because satellite dishes at the time um cost some seventy five thousand dollars yeah. in that day's money. Some, something your average homeowner probably wasn't going to Probably you know, invest not. In. I wouldn't. No, I wouldn't have either. Uh, so what they were doing was sending, beaming the signal up to a satellite that would then beam down to satellite receiver dishes that were owned by other cable systems. Uh, right. So the cable operator would then send that signal out via cable. Right. Because originally what 
these companies were doing was using microwave transmission. But microwave transmission has a limited range and you need line of sight for it to work. Right. So in other words, if you had even a really powerful microwave radio station in, say, Pennsylvania, it's not going to reach all the way out to the other side of the, the, the United States. Uh, not without a bunch of relays built yeah, up exactly. in between. Exactly. Sure. Yeah, you'd have to end line of sight relays. So getting those Rocky Mountains would be kind of tricky. But what they decided to do was instead use geostationary satellites. So geostationary orbit, it means that the satellite is actually maintaining its position above a specific point on the Earth. And these satellites are way the heck out there. Okay, so our, our satellites that, that we tend to think of in our, our you know, the ones that, are, by the way, in the in the biz, they're called birds, apparently. I did not know that until huh. I started reading all the information. They call them birds. So these birds up there, like if you're talking about normal ones that just pass over uh, in low Earth orbit, we're talking maybe 100, 150 miles out from the surface of the Earth. Like where the ISS is? Yeah. Mm-hmm. These these satellites, they don't maintain a position directly over a point. You have to go much further out. So the geostationary uh, satellites that, that HBO was interested in were 22,300 miles out because from that distance, they had a, a broadcast footprint that covered all of North America. So with one satellite, you could then beam the signals that could be picked up across the United States. Because the further out, you kind of think of it like a flashlight. The further out you go, Uh, the more area it covers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, to put it in perspective, if you remember from our AT&T episode, the very first active communication satellite had only been launched like 12 years earlier in 1962. So so although 12 years is a long time in technological thinking, that's still, this is is cutting edge technology at the time. Exactly. Yeah, no one else had done it yet. You know, no one else had managed to do the television stuff yet, uh, like HBO did. So... They, uh, the technical term for beaming it up, that's using the uplink satellite mm-hmm. to antenna. So you're, that's the transmission. You use the uplink to send it up to the satellite. The satellite has transponders on it specifically, uh, that have been leased by whatever company, in this case HBO, to then, uh, beam this, amplify that signal that it picks up and then beam it back down to the earth. And then you have the downlink receiver dishes that capture that signal and then send it on to the cable station for transmission. It might do that might be transmitted over microwave at that point, depending upon whether or not the receiving station and the cable station are adjoining or if they're separated by several miles or whatever. So that was the basic principle behind it. And so on September 30th, HBO was able to carry the Muhammad Ali Joe Frazier boxing match, also known as the Thrilla in Manila. They were the only live carrier in the U.S. for for this programming, and uh, the organizers timed the fight to happen during East Coast prime time. Yep. And so those Pennsylvania and New York subscribers who could already enjoy HBO because it was being transmitted via uh, microwave transmission to to cable operators were joined by folks in Florida, like 15,000 of them who were able to see this simultaneously because of this. It actually could technically be picked up across the entire United States, mm-hmm. just whichever but ones were affiliated with HBO. three towns in Florida, I think, were the only ones yeah. that actually had the satellite downlink. At that time, yeah. So the thing was that because HBO was able to do this and because they could, they could back up the claim that they could do this to anywhere in the United States that happened to have cable service, as long as the cable operator carried HBO... So if they partner with us, we can let you see this stuff, too. It ended up being a huge boon. In fact, uh, there there are reports that 
if someone came out to install cable in a neighbor's house and other neighbors noticed, they would chase down the cable car. Saying, yeah, they, Don't. they would see HBO on the side of the van and like run down the street yeah. and like knock on the sides. And so, could you also hook me up? I would love to have that, too. So big, big boost to HBO. If it hadn't been for the satellite move, it probably never would have gone much further than the regionalized mm-hmm. pay TV network that it was. Maybe eventually it would have crept further along, but it wouldn't be near where it is now. Oh, certainly. And by the end of 1975, they had more than 300,000 subscribers in 16 states to show for it. Uh, furthermore, I mean, th- this really proved that there was a lot of money and space in the cable and satellite TV field. Yeah. And not only did they prove that to their subscribers, they proved it to competitors. Oh, right. Because in 1976. Yeah. HBO had a rival pop up, a rival known as Showtime. Mm-hmm. Now, here's an interesting thing to me, Lauren. Uh, you know, when I started doing the research for this episode and we started building out these notes, I did not realize that HBO dated all the way back to 1972, nor did I realize that Showtime dated back to 1976, probably because I didn't have cable as a kid until I was at least seven or eight years old. Uh, uh-huh. uh, and, and so to me, and, and we didn't have Showtime. We did get HBO. But uh, to me, I, I always thought of this. Why? It must have been late 70s, maybe early 80s. I didn't realize that it was actually much older than that. Now. Showtime, very similar in concept to HBO. It also would run uncut, uncensored movies. Mm -hmm. In fact, HBO and Showtime would often have a very similar, if not nearly identical list of movies that they could run at any given time. At at this early beginning stage, yes. Yeah, and some would argue, moving forward, same thing. Um, Within two years, so 1978, Showtime would follow suit. It would follow HBO's example and go nationwide with a satellite service, which at that time had only been done by one other channel besides HBO, which was Ted Turner's superstation, WTBS, also known as just TBS or Turner Broadcast System. Mm -hmm. So TBS and HBO together were companies that made cable subscriptions more attractive. Keep in mind, it was still really expensive to install cable into cities. It wasn't just New York that was a special case. That was an example that was mirrored in cities across the United States. Oh, right, right. So uh, although supposedly T- Ted Turner and, and TBS got into the game because he heard about HBO, mostly after that that big prize fight had occurred. Yeah. Legend has it that someone said, yeah, someone convinced time to, to use the satellite hookup and they're and they're getting the fight live. It's on HBO. And he was like, what's an HBO? Yeah. Which yeah. was a common refrain at the time, apparently, right in those early days before that boom. Sure. No one had really heard of it, but everyone was fascinated once they did. Because, again, in those early days, it was only available to a few tens of thousands of people. So if you didn't live in one of those regions that, that was currently served by HBO, why would you have heard of it? So, yeah, it was one of those things where, where Turner ended up jumping on that that strategy, even though he had not really heard of the the channel that had already done it. Uh, it's also why we all got to enjoy Georgia Championship Wrestling. So thank you, Mr. Turner. Um, so then uh, we start seeing some competition showing up with Showtime there and some actual competition that that lasts. It's not like those other channels we mentioned earlier that that faded made, away. Yeah, that made a go of it and didn't succeed. Mm-hmm. So 1977. HBO, for the first time since it started in 1972, turns a profit, which not again, not very surprising. You've got uh, a lot of money that has to go out from HBO for it to be able to run its business. It had to pay licensing fees to movie studios in order to get the rights to show the movies on HBO. 
So it had to spend money in order to even have content. And then it had to try and make that up in subscriptions. Uh, also, all of that infrastructure was certainly not cheap. Right. So while HBO probably didn't have to foot the bill for most of that, considering that they would partner with cable companies, they had to convince cable companies to go through the trouble of installing all that cable into m- major metropolitan areas uh, in order to have a larger subscription base. Right. I mean, they had to say, like, hey, cable company that services Nashville, Tennessee, you want to put cable in all your homes. I know that it's a you lot of money. You want to pour concrete and build a nine foot dish to yeah. get a satellite downlink so that you can run, you know, $10,000 yeah. worth of cable per mile exactly. out to all of these homes. Like, but just keep in mind that over the long term, you're going to make lots of money. So that was an argument they had to make over and over again. They got really good at making that argument. Also in 1977, a lawyer named Michael Fuchs came over to HBO from the William Morris Agency. He'll be pretty important later on in the story. That's why I decided to mention when he showed up. Sure, absolutely. Um, But at the time, in 1978, uh, so at this point, HBO has about 1.5 million subscribers. Mm -hmm. But they are losing tens of thousands. Yeah, because of a pretty nasty business move on the part of Showtime. So... Here's the thing about the cable business, y'all. It's it's not polite. <laughs> it is it is a competitive cutthroat business. The the the, the gloves are off. Yeah. No, we've seen this <laughs> in multiple ways, both as consumers and on the other side. I mean, there are a lot of considerations you have to make when you're running a, a cable business, whether you're an operator, there are a lot of of considerations you have to make. Or if you're a content creator, there are a lot of considerations you have to make. Uh, absolutely. Um, and so, okay, so so Showtime, Showtime's parent company was Viacom. Yeah. Right? Big, big company, big competitor to Time. And they had made a deal with a cable provider called Teleprompter, which was the largest cable operator in the United States. Yep. Uh, to be their exclusive pay TV movie channel. Which meant that any Teleprompter uh, subscriber could get Showtime, but would not be able to get HBO. Right. Even if they wanted it, it was not an option. So that meant that HBO was suddenly cut off from a large portion of potential customers. So what does Time Incorporated do? They purchase American Television and Communications Corporation, which was the second largest cable system operator in the U.S. They were hoping that perhaps the 675,000 or so customers would also subscribe to HBO. And HBO also continued to add premium films to its collection making some pretty interesting business deals. They were able to uh, negotiate a, a block of 40 MGM and United Artist titles for about $35 million. Now, these were titles that were movies. Some of them hadn't come out yet. So this was just kind of a, you know, here's $35 million. We want to be able to grab the 40 titles that you guys come up with. Uh, right, right. They, they were investing in pre-production in return for exclusive rights to these films. Yep. Um, and it was a huge gamble because... You, you don't know if that film is going to be a flop or not. You you don't yeah. know if people are going to want to right. subscribe to your service. Right, right. It might be like, wow, HBO has exclusive rights to some of the worst movies I've to ever Cabin seen. Cabin Fever. That's great. Yeah. Sorry, Cabin Fever. I'm not sure where that came yeah. from. Uh, but yeah, sometimes it paid off. Sometimes it didn't. And in fact, they also began to learn lessons down the line. One of the early lessons they learned, actually, I guess it wasn't that early. One of the lessons they would eventually learn is that they could set minimums for how much money they would spend for a title. This was something that was negotiated with the movie studio. So they might say, all right, at minimum, we'll pay you 
$50,000 for this title. That's I'm just pulling a number out of the air, by the way. That's not a, necessarily a real number. But what they didn't think to do is set a cap on how much ultimately a movie might be valued at. And if they entered an agreement ahead of time to purchase a certain number of movies from a certain studio and one of those movies becomes a runaway hit and they are obligated to purchase the rights to that movie and the movie studio is in the, the, the bargaining position where they can demand huge amounts of money for that, that became a huge uh, expense uh, for HBO. Yeah, yeah. We'll talk about a specific example of that a little bit later on in another episode. So, yeah, yeah, big risks, but it also what meant that it was paying off and helping differentiate HBO from Showtime. Now, we move up to 1979. This is where we're going to conclude this episode. But 1979, we see a man named Jeff Bukes, who had started as a trainee at Citibank uh, in their law department. And, and also, by the way, is, is rumored to have had a very what's HBO response when he first heard about the network. Right. And he figured then, out what the network was and yep. and left his entire career in order to go be a part of this new media company. Yeah, he had worked. He had entered Citibank's trainee program. He worked there in the law department for two years and then said, I'm going to HBO. And I'm sure some of the people at that time said, What's HBO? <laughs> uh, so he would end up doing pretty well over at HBO. We'll talk more about Bukes throughout the next few episodes. But in general, just to give you a little preview, in 1990, he became president of HBO. So, you know, pretty good. Uh, 1995, he became the CEO. Well, that's, that's even better. And in 2008, he became CEO of the parent company, Time Warner. Uh, now, granted, Time Warner itself is still off in the future. It's back in 1979. It was still just Time Incorporated. But... Yeah, he, he became the head honcho. And the same year, back in 1979, HBO decided to experiment with launching a complimentary pay TV channel that ran more kid-friendly, PG-rated movies and was priced at a lower price point. Because some people were saying, you know, it's too expensive or I don't really want all this sex and violence on my television. And so they thought, oh, well, we'll, we'll cater to this this group of people. We'll be able to get people who can't. Uh, justify the expense of a monthly subscription to HBO. Or who wants something that's kid-friendly, we'll, we'll give them this. And It'll be terrific. We'll call it Take Two, which if you start searching for, it's going to take you a while to find. Because it was not terrific. It didn't Nobody go over. Cared. Yeah, no one really cared. It died out pretty quietly. Um, so yeah, finding finding mentions of Take Two, somewhat challenging. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure Wikipedia has a short little entry about not not an entry on Take Two, but I think it mentions it in the overall article for HBO. It's a little red link. Yeah, probably. Yeah. One of those things where like you you may have heard of it if you worked for HBO. That's how how obscure we're talking. Well, we've got so much more to talk about with HBO. We have a lot of of interesting information about what it did into the 80s. And of course, the the amazing, uh, the crazy time. boom in original content yeah. and, uh, and where it stands today. Yeah. So j- keep with us, guys. We got two more episodes to go with this. And in the meanwhile, if you're thinking, you know, I really like how they're doing this in-depth coverage of a specific topic. I want to hear this kind of, of depth on this other topic. You gotta let us know because otherwise we're just we're we're just turning the lights off and groping around in the dark and to try and talk about something and half the time that ends up just being insulation foam because that's all this room is filled with so guys if you have an idea for an episode let us know send us an email that address is techstuff at discovery.com or drop us a line on the various social networks we like to hang out on that includes twitter facebook and tumblr the handle there is techstuffhsw 
and Lauren and I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 